0: Welcome back to practicing Catholic French Catholic novelist Leon Boy once wrote the only real sadness the only real failure the only great tragedy in life is not to become a saint of course the universal call to holiness calls us all to be saints but uh, I'm guessing if you're like me you're not necessarily planning on being a canonized saint anytime too soon. Joining me now is Monsignor Jason Gray from the Diocese of Peoria, though, to walk us through the steps of the canonization process, just in case we might be headed in that direction. But it's always good to know what makes for a canonized saint in our Catholic tradition. Monsignor Gray, welcome to the program. Very good. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, thank you for being with us. Let's start out, Monsignor. Just what are we saying? What is the church saying about a person when he or she is declared a saint? Yeah, I
1: I think the first thing that people would just instinctively say is they say, well, a saint is someone who's in heaven. And that's fine enough as a kind of like just an entry level um, understanding. But when we get more into the details and we get a little more technical, um, we talk about someone that the church holds up uh, as uh, worthy of imitation, someone that we should honor and revere someone we bring into the liturgy, someone we pray. We pray through their intercession. So we, we talk about um, the, the pope defining things in terms of faith and morals. That's what the pope uh, teaches about authentically and infallibly. So part of our faith and part of living out a moral life is uh, following the examples of the saints. So we, we talk about them being intercessors and worthy of imitation. Um, so we want to try to imitate their example. If they lived a good life, then we should be able to follow the same style of life that they did. And that would lead us surely to heaven. And so uh, that's the idea of, of imitating their virtues, imitating their practices, uh, that they're worthy of that, um, of that imitation. But then also we pray and we pray for their intercession. We ask for their help. Um, we believe that they will answer our prayers. And that's the intercession. So those two words come together, imitation and intercession. Um, we think that we can call upon them in our private prayers. And we ask for them to help us, to guide us, um, to assist us but we also call upon them in our public prayers. We invoke their name at mass and and name churches in their honor. We um, uh, honor their relics in altars, and it would really be a travesty if there was someone who was really unworthy who we were to to somehow publicly honor in the church. That would would actually render our prayers and and the Eucharist itself to really be profane or a sacrilege if we were to somehow honor an unworthy person And so that's why why the church really wants to hold up high standards of really making sure that we not just have someone in heaven, but someone who really excels, someone who truly is exemplary in living out the Christian life, who we would honor in our prayer, in our worship, and that we would strive to imitate the
0: example of their life. Wonderful. Well, let's actually dive right into that, those high standards that you talked about. Now, so somebody passes away, and uh, what's, what are some of the first initial steps that are involved to begin the cause for canonization for an individual?
1: Sure. When, when I was working in the Congregation of the Causes of Saints, I know our prefect used to um, say often, he would say that the canonization process is the most democratic process in the church, is that it, it has to come from the people, it has to come from below. Um, it has to come from the spontaneous desire of the faithful who hold a, a particular person in high regard and, and think that they really are a model of holiness. And so it can start with as little as one person, but truthfully, more often, it's really a, a group of people um, who share a common opinion, like, like uh, Mother Teresa, for example. every Everyone really revered her even before the church pronounced her as a saint, but many people privately held the opinion uh, that she was really worthy of honor. And so it's from the Those who are ready to take up the cause, individual people who are ready to step forward, who are ready to put their time and efforts behind the work necessary, Um, they would then retain a postulator. They have to to get someone who is trained in this process who can help guide them. They have to help build kind of an initial case by really um, drawing together a lot of the details of their life and people who knew them and documents and writings that would all contribute to build this case. And eventually, these, um, this uh, private person or private group or private individuals eventually come to the church and they present it to the local diocese. They, they go to their diocese and bishop, um, and that's really the first, you'd say, real formal step in which they ask for the cause to be opened. So it's, it's a local bishop is the one who actually opens a cause. Um, and he begins the process of appointing the, the people who would carry out the investigation um, at the request of the faithful. Um, But the uh, and then an investigation itself begins. So the diocesan bishop names different officials who are going to take testimony. They're going to talk to people who would have known, especially firsthand, the the servant of God, those proposed for canonization. They're going to gather documents, uh, writings that are written, especially the writings of the Servant of God and, and any other documents that might also help to build that case. It's a tremendous effort, a lot of witnesses, a lot of questions, a lot of documents. This ends up oftentimes going into hundreds or thousands or sometimes even tens of thousands of pa- pieces of paper, um, all told, that um, get gathered together. And the job is to leave no stone left unturned. It's, it really has to be as thorough as possible um weeding out every potential weakness or flaw that might be present um, it's not just enough to just talk about the good things but uh the people who are involved in that investigation um one of them is called the promoter of justice who sometimes mm. people like to refer to as the devil's advocate that's yeah um, right every time people hear about the devil's advocate they get excited they like oh this this sounds <laughs> sounds very medieval actually yeah i does. think what it is but um but his job is really to, to test the case. It's you know, so every you everyone's going to say wonderful things about uh, a particular person who they honor and revere. But someone's got to test that to see, you know, well, what about not just during the good times, but what about during the hard times? Is how can we really be certain? Is how did they handle difficult difficulties and setbacks? And so um, every aspect of that case has to be challenged. And if there's any weakness, that really needs to be probed. Um, and that all goes together in this in this extensive thorough detailed and voluminous um, diocesan investigation and then later that gets sent over to rome and the congregation of the causes the saints is the one that receives that investigation and opens the those documents and then subjects them to quite a bit of study so you might say the local bishop is the one that gathers the evidence but then when it goes to rome it's in rome that they will evaluate the evidence and eventually they'll make a recommendation to the Pope and it's for the Pope to decide um, what he thinks about that. So whether or not to approve that person or not.
0: Okay. So we I know we have more steps to go here, but I wanted to go back to some of the things that you were saying there, specifically uh, just wondering about, yes, how did they handle the hard times when difficulties came, setbacks, things like that? What was their response in those times? But let's be honest. I mean, uh, although sometimes we can read these glowing uh, reviews of a now canonized saint's life it seems like uh they rivaled the blessed virgin mary for never having sinned but there's some that we are we know uh we know that they had a past uh and so what about the uh the growth and holiness or what about the uh the sinful parts of these persons lives uh, before the conversion that they might have had before uh, as they're investigating this. What kind of role does that play?
1: That's really an excellent point because uh, short of our Lord and short of our Lady, really uh, every one of us is a sinner. And so we, we realize that we, we are not perfect and we don't expect that of our of saints. Um, so they're, they're not perfect, but uh, they're really uh, great models of holiness. The, usually what happens in the, when we look at lives of saints is there's sometimes a moment when they undergo conversion. And you take someone like St. Augustine, he was really quite the sinner early on in mm-hmm. life. And right. just because he had committed um, tremendous sins at one point, um, that doesn't stop him from being canonized because later in life he goes through a real authentic conversion and uh, leaves sinful life behind. Um, but even after that conversion, we, we'd expect to see for someone who is worthy of canonization, someone who practiced the virtues and, and not just a few of the virtues, but practiced all the virtues, the theological virtues, the cardinal virtues, um, all of the virtues and practiced them consistently and to a heroic degree. Um, I, I like to say that um, a lot of us, we, we strive to practice virtue, and I think a lot of us can, can do that for a while and at times and maybe we are good at certain virtues and we can do them at you know at certain times and but to do them consistently i think that actually is much more difficult and to do them in a heroic way that's much more difficult and that's what distinguishes a saint not perfection but the consistent and heroic practice of virtue they they really need to be seen as outstanding in
0: living that christian life that makes a lot of sense, Monsignor. Thank you for that. All right, let's pick back up with the process again. So, let's say it's sent off to the Holy Father, and the Pope has decided, yes, um, this is worthy of pursuing. What happens next?
1: Well, really, it's the Holy Father really doesn't intervene until the very end of the process. It's it's really oh, up for okay. initially. It's up to the diocesan bishop to be the one to decide. To open a case and the diocesan bishop can do that on his own he doesn't actually need permission um, to do that it's it's later the holy father who will look at the entire fruits of that entire investigation and, um, and say that, yes, this person was a martyr, this person practiced heroic virtue, or eventually, if there's a miracle, that it would approve that miracle. But when, when the diocesan bishop decides to open that, that case, um, one of the things that he does, and I think this is really an important step, is, is he issues an edict. They, ca- they call it the edict. It's really just essentially uh, his responsibility to publicize the, that the case is being opened. Um, so causes of saints, they're, they're, not, they're investigated with a kind of degree of confidentiality, but the fact that you open the case, that is public, that is public knowledge. And it's important that it be so because, um, it's, it's a little bit like, um, sometimes you see in, in TV or movies of a wedding is if anyone has just cause, why this couple should not be joined in matrimony, speak now or forever hold your peace. And there's a sense in which when you open a cause of canonization, you want the world to know that it's being opened. Because if anyone has anything to say, lots of times it'll be good. But if anyone has something to say that's negative, um, not only should we hear the good, but we absolutely want to hear the, the, the contrary opinions. And the publicization of the uh, opening of that process, I think, is to give people the opportunity to have something useful to say to come forward. And, um, okay. and that is an important thing. So different witnesses can be heard.
0: We hear a lot about in the can- canonization process about the testimony of miracles. Take us into that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: when when there is a miracle, we're looking really for two things that have to come together. Uh, one of them is that you have an event that is beyond all natural explanation. So something that, that is supernatural, If it doesn't have a natural explanation, then it must be something that has a supernatural explanation. And then also with that, you want to see that there was the invocation of the intercession of that servant of God. So someone had to pray. Um, We want the the miraculous event, and we also need to see prayers to that, that particular candidate. And um, when we talk about the idea of supernatural, something that is beyond all natural explanation, uh, it's important to know that it's, it's not just enough that something be really rare or super rare. Uh, if you have someone who recovers from some particular form of cancer and you'd say, well, this is a, you know, one in 10,000 people survive this, that's not good enough. As far as the church is concerned, that does not qualify Um, because could be that just the person involved was the one out of the 10,000 and and that could be a natural explanation. But usually the way that you end up finding that it was supernatural or beyond all natural explanation is also the way it happens. So it's not just that someone recovered from cancer after a lengthy treatment of of radiation and all sorts of things. Now, if the person actually said a prayer, uh, touched a relic, invoked a, a saint, made a pilgrimage, and then suddenly, um, without any other explanation, uh, a cancerous mass that was there before has now suddenly disappeared. That you cannot explain through, mm. through natural science. Those would be examples of ways that we find something beyond all natural explanation. Wow! Um, and then we yeah. warn people when they when they're praying to saints, they, they make sure that you know who you're praying to, because if you pray to 18 people, we don't know which one. We don't right. know who answered right. the prayer. We have, we have to know who, who was it that, that uh, responded to that prayer. So
0: Right, right. You're putting a little bit on the line there because, you yeah, you just need to invoke the one person, right? Yeah. So, yeah, very good, very good. <laughs> Only about a minute remaining, Monsignor. We're speaking with Monsignor right. Jason Gray from the Diocese of Peoria about the canonization process. A couple of quick questions that I have before we ask for your blessing. Uh, but one would be... um any way of short-circuiting the process? I mean, what about martyrs?
1: Oh, well, martyrs, uh, martyrs. You rather than trying to show this lengthy process of having lived the virtues consistently and heroically, to some extent, martyrs, what you need to show is that they accepted death voluntarily out of their faith in Christ. And so rather than having to look at years and years of the practice of consistent virtue, for martyr, what you're really focused on is what happened at the end of their life. So were they ready to heroically embrace death? Uh, without fear, and to do so with faith. Um, we still want to see that a martyr is a, still a worthy person throughout their life. But for martyrdom, you're really focused on one moment in their life rather than kind of the totality of their life. So that that would be a little different.
0: Okay. My second question is, any resources you would suggest for people who would like to investigate further the whole canonization process? Mm.
1: The the Congregation of the Causes of Saints does put out a, a text that really goes into a lot of the detail. It's written in Italian, but uh, <laughs> I, I know that's uh, for people who really want to get technically into it. Um, but beyond that, I, I just know that um, you know. I think I think a lot of the details about the process you can learn from seeing different causes as they um, are undertaken. As a lot of times, whether it's different people who have already been beatified or canonized, um, sometimes you can kind of you know follow the the course of they their websites and you can hear the story about how they walk, walk through the canonization. You can learn a lot from just watching how a particular cause developed, um, especially one where you have a, a blessed or a saint, because that means that they they were successful in their efforts. And so that that's a great, you learn by example. That's probably the best and the most easy practical way to learn.
0: Sounds good, Monsignor. All right, Monsignor, before we let you go, if you would give us uh, and all of our listeners an on-air blessing, please.
1: Sure, my pleasure. So the Lord be with you. And with, with your, spirit. your spirit. And the Almighty God bless you all, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
0: Amen. All right, Monsignor Jason Gray, thank you so much for sharing with us about the canonization process today. God bless you and your continued ministry.
1: Very good. Thanks, Patrick.
0: My pleasure. All right. We are going to head into our next break. When we return, interested in turning your good marriage into a great one? Amy and Tim Lemke from Worldwide Marriage Encounter will tell you how right after this, so stay with us.